if you were to take shorts or what you're getting from like Meta or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok, which platform is currently winning? Obviously, YouTube is winning, but you know, shorts no, have its they, own fund. Oh, this is where are you making this is the an most interesting money? One. Maybe it's a little a little insight, a little secret that we have. But for the last four months in a row, which is crazy because this didn't happen any of the last two years. For the last four months in a row, we've been making more like ad revenue off of Facebook, almost double on Facebook than we've been making on YouTube. Welcome everyone. Welcome to Creative Disruption. I am your host, Ricky Ray Butler, and I am so excited um, about our guest today, a good friend of mine, Dan Markham from What's Inside. How are you doing, Dan? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. You know, you you really created your own little vertical and category um, for yourself and, and your son Lincoln with, with the What's Inside channel. Um, we'd love to just get a brief history on like, you know, how did you start it? What were the beginning days like? And then how did it become what it is today? Yeah, it's so funny because it feels like it was yesterday and it feels like, but in the YouTube world, it was a long time ago. Like we became YouTubers before kids in elementary wanted to be YouTubers. And I know there's people like Marquez Brownlee that have been on YouTube since like 2009. But basically back in like 2014, Lincoln was in second grade. He had a second grade science project and he was like, let's, dad, I want to know what's inside of sports balls. What if we just cut them open, put them on a poster board. And that was his science project. And he just, wow. everybody had to go that night, just put a poster board up. And that was basically it. So instead of just being that dad that sometimes I am where you like, just go to the internet and like print out pictures of it. And like, here's the inside and the core of a baseball. I was like, let's cut these things. I'm going to go, I went to Ace Hardware. I'm terrible with tools. And I like cut the things open and I filmed each one of them because I saw at the time that people searched for questions on YouTube more than they searched on Google. And back then in like 2014, that was kind of like a aha moment and a big thing. People probably know that a lot more now, but back then I was like, that's really weird because I use Google for everything. So we, I made every one of them into a video. And why is that? You think it's just because videos are more transparent and you know, you, I mean, there's just an advantage of learning things faster. Yeah. Like if I'm like, how do you fix your, how do I fix my kitchen sink? Like I have, you can read something, but if I can watch a YouTube video of somebody fixing it. And I feel like back then YouTube in a way was less of a bunch of influencers that were putting out tons of content, vlog content, really viral type stuff. And it was more like a utility, like here's this, this is how you fix this. This is how you do that. And that's where people would go for it. Right. And so, so, so I was hoping. How, how did you get to this point yeah. though, where where Lincoln has a science project where he wants to cut, you know, a ball in half to see what's inside. How did you take it from there to like realizing that there's an opportunity on YouTube? It was interesting because we posted them. He went to his school and at the end of his presentation, it just said youtube.com slash Lincoln Markham. And that was the channel. And that's still the channel. If you type in Lincoln Markham, it goes to what's inside. <laughs> and we let it sit there for a year. And I, I kind of like, I clicked the monetization button because I had a Google AdSense account, but we didn't publish anything else. We had a bunch of family videos on there and it was about 12 months later. It was like a December of that year. We got $4 in revenue in one day. And it was off of these what's inside videos. Somebody would watch a home run by a baseball player. And then it would be suggested what's inside of a baseball and they'd click on it and we'd make money. And I was like, Lincoln do you want to make some money uh, like for college or something? How about we just keep cutting things open? And he's like, sure, dad, let's do it. So that was kind of like the aha moment. Like, oh, you can make money here. I had read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it's like, have assets that are working for you. And I'm like, if I could make like 200 or 300 videos of cutting things open and have them just making money overnight, that $4 is going to add up to a lot. So that's kind of how initially it started before I realized that- How many views did that video get? 
before you started up, it, I mean, uploading more frequently? It wasn't even that many views. Like it didn't take that much to make $4. It was across the, the five videos of like what's inside. And so, yeah. And, and once we started making more videos, I realized that like you actually have an audience that wants to come along with you. You have to cultivate that. You can't just throw videos up and just let it hit the algorithm and try to get you, make you money, which is originally kind of the thought of it. And that's when we kind of like actually learn to really enjoy it and love it where we got to interact with these people and get to know our subscribers and make videos that they give us suggestions on and that, that we can like feed to that. So that's great. Well, our first time meeting, you were still doing medical cells. Right. right and 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 you you and lincoln it was like more of like just a, a side hustle or side project um when did you come to the conclusion that this is going to be something that's going to be very lucrative and and very successful we started we were doing our videos and it was great and we'd do these like brand deals where we would make like a thousand dollars for getting somebody three million views for a mattress company or something and i remember going to um this conference this this youtuber conference conference and devin supertramp spoke and he broke it down and I was like, wow, I can't believe he's sharing all this. And he says, I make 70% of my revenue off of brand deals. I make 20% off of AdSense and I make 10% off of licensing my content. And I'm sitting there like doing the math, looking at his channel, the millions and millions of views. And I'm all I did at the time really was just the AdSense side of it. And we didn't get that many views, but it still was a good amount of money. And I'm like, if he's making that much, that brand deal side is huge. And that's when I started looking out and that's like kind of how I met you and your company at the time. I was like reaching out to whoever does brand deals for YouTubers and being like, Hey, we could, we provide some views and maybe we could work something out and do a brand deal. And once I got the, like our first big brand deal, which was with, <laughs> with you guys. And, um, that was huge. It was like more than a quarter of my salary for the year in one video that we put out. And so that's when I started having that aha moment. I'm like, if this, if, if we could really integrate these brands and continue this and it seems, seems sustainable, then I would actually be dumb to stay at my day job, even though it was super secure. I enjoyed my job. I'd have like a pension, all these things. And finally, I finally, I just said, we're going to take, I'm going to take two years off, see how it goes. If it doesn't go well, I'll go back to my job. And that was kind of like the moment where I stepped aside and we'd already had over a million subscribers. So it was kind of late in the game, but as far as like when some people quit their jobs, but that was kind of the point when I was like, all right, let's try this out. <laughs> so you want to do it in a very calculated way. We can mitigate risk. And exactly. <laughs> well, it, well, it's worked out for you. Uh, and, 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 and that's amazing. And it's, it's interesting you bring up, you know, Devin, cause actually Devin was like the leader of like the Utah scene, which was really big early YouTube days where, you know, I think it was like one of the biggest communities of creators at the time. And he, and I remember that he used to do these free lectures and conferences just to really motivate other local creators to create and, 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 and to keep with it, which, you know, I think made a lot of benefit, but right. it, it's interesting, you know, we did a lot of, you know, Devin's brand deals and, um, and, you know, when he's at his peak, you know, we did a lot of stuff when it came to like video games um, and recreating these video games in real life, like Assassin's Creed Parkour or Such a good video. Yeah, no, that, that, that was definitely an epic. Or, you know, we did stuff with also films and other types of products as well. It's interesting today. It's still, you know, very similar. Um, but now that we have 200 million creators out there. 68% um, of creators say that they're making more money from brand collaborations than anywhere else. Is that still the case with your channel? Um, have you it figured is. out other ways of 
um, 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 driving revenue outside of brand deals that's actually overtaken it as a percentage? I, brand deals are still the driver. They're still the biggest bucket right now, but there's been, it seems like there's always different ways to make money off of like the ad revenue. Um, like the latest thing that we've been doing to make money off the thing is everybody's trying to keep up with TikTok. And so whether it's Facebook or with their reels or whether it's um, YouTube with their shorts, and there's been some bonuses that they have paid where they're still not doing really advertisements in there, but we've been able to chop up some of our old content and mix it in with some new short content that we make. And some of that revenue has been really lucrative. And then even Snapchat is still offering a bonus every single day for whoever the top people are. They take a million dollars and they split it up among the top views. And so like, it's interesting to take some of our old content that's been up for seven or eight years, but making a few really creative cut downs and posting those as reels right now or as shorts or as the Snapchat story or whatever you call it, and, and actually able to get a little bit more money on that. But back going back to Devin, like the thing that Devin used to say is that most of his job was educating these companies and like actually having conversation and explaining why would you even use a, a YouTube creator or an influencer? And, and it's nice because talking about pioneers, like he, he kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of it. And I would imagine when you started your company, it was the same thing. It's like explaining to these companies still, I would imagine there's companies that are like, why, what's the value? We just did a brand deal yesterday. We just published it yesterday. It's the first ever influencer deal that this smaller company had ever done. And it did really well. Like they sold so many and they were very hesitant at the beginning, but more and more these days, it's more of, like you said, there it's the companies understand the value of YouTube creators or influencers or TikTokers. And that's just kind of deciding like, where do we want to go with that? What would, what type of campaign do we want to do? Who do we want to use? And from a creator side of things, there's more competition. And so we have to make sure that like our value, it's not just about getting that deal, but it's let's make the video that hopefully gives a big enough return to the brand that they, it's a win-win. Like obviously we get paid, but it's maybe it's not a one-time deal. And whether it's us getting money for that or, or another creator down the road, like you want to make sure we want to make sure that we do a good job and like actually give them a return on their money. Otherwise it's like, you're not going to see the deal or they may not work with other creators, which kind of hurts the whole ecosystem. Wow. No, that's very helpful. Um, random question. Um, so <laughs> not including, um, you know, YouTube's traditional AdSense. If you were to take shorts um, or what you're getting from like Meta or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok, which platform is currently winning? Obviously, YouTube's winning, but you know, short no, of its they, own fund. Oh, this is, where are you making this the is most an interesting money? one. This is an interesting one because I don't think this is going to be the same answer for a lot of people. But and maybe it's a little a little insight, a little secret that we have. But for the last four months in a row, which is crazy because this didn't happen any of the last two years. For the last four months in a row, we've been making more like ad revenue off of Facebook with if you add up like the the revenue from the ads and then also the bonuses from the different from the reels we've been almost double on Facebook than we've been making on YouTube and what's wow. interesting is this month and, this and, last and that's month, not YouTube shorts that's YouTube 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 ad revenue and I'm not counting brand deals in that brand deals still take the cake and you make the most with the, this last month off of that but just looking at what comes in every single month and just from the ad revenue side of it just from the videos Facebook has been winning. And I don't think a lot of people know that that's kind of there. So that's been a nice little surprise this year. I've only seen that one other case and that's with like Glad Baby, but they are, you know, primarily a meta or a Facebook creator. And, um, you know, we're one of those early, you know, channels that got to 
really test a lot of the new features of monetization on, on, on Facebook. So Facebook is, 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 is the leading horse right now in the race when it comes to um, RevShare. That, that yep. blows my mind, to be honest. It is a weird one. And it's interesting because we ended the year pretty weak, the last quarter on Facebook, and the beginning of the previous year was pretty strong. And so when January came and employees came back and we're like, all right, what should we do here? Let's put some focus on Facebook. Let's, let's see if we can get it back and hopefully get some revenue there from it. And then it took about three or four weeks. We figured out a few little things once we dug deep and and now, and it's funny, some of the stuff that takes off on there that you wouldn't expect to take off and that stuff that continues to do well four years, three years after we posted it there. So yeah, between the bonus and that's something that is open to everybody. When you open up your Instagram and you're a creator and it's like, you're posting a reel and it's like, would you like to be part of the $1,000 bonus this month? Well, I don't know that I'm allowed to say like how much they go up, but they do <laughs> go up higher. So if you get wow. a certain number of views, whether you're using the Facebook tool for putting up your reels or the Instagram tool for using your reels, they do have a bonus structure in place for creators that you can like apply for and potentially be a part of. And then every month they reevaluate whether you're going to be a part of that. So that's a portion of it, but then just the regular monetization that's open to everybody. And what's different than I think some people that are on Facebook is all of ours is hundred percent organic. We don't pay for views on Facebook. We're not running ads in front of certain people. It's all organic on there. So that has definitely been our like surprise of 2022 is that the Facebook has driven that revenue side of it. So Facebook started driving this revenue this year after just a couple of months. Yep. Yep. Just this year, December, November, October, September, we're actually really slow on Facebook, really slow <laughs> for us at least. Which is bizarre because that's like the holiday season where you'd expect, you know, right. you know, higher revenues. So when you say Facebook, because you're entertaining interchangeably like using Facebook and Instagram, is it mainly Instagram or are, are you making mm -hmm. more money from the actual, you know, face, Facebook? We don't really do anything. We don't make any, we, we post on Instagram and we post some reels on there, but we really make no revenue on there other than sponsored posts where we post stories or reels, but it's really that their ad revenue side of it isn't as strong as what I see on Facebook. And it's interesting because when we first saw at the beginning of the year and we saw everybody moving over to short form content, and being incentivized by from different platforms. And we've saw some pretty big creators that are, have been on Facebook for a long time, making longer form content, switching entirely to shorts. And as much as I see that being a trend and you can make their bonuses, we kind of decided as a team, we're going to do a hybrid approach because you got to think long-term. And even though there might be some short-term money in some of these like short form content platforms, if you look at the actual business model and when they do their quarterly earnings, it's going to also be about what, how much they made off of ad revenue and long form content and videos is really what drives that ad revenue for any of these companies. And so if that's kind of like a piece of advice that I'd have for a creator, it's worked for us this year because we did have a few, we had a couple of slow months with our long form content, but we continued to go with it, share our older content, post our refreshed, newer content on there. And then finally in the last, I'd say 45 days, it started, the long form content started to pick up. And so I think that, yeah, following the money and like what is important to these platforms is that's key. You got to follow what's important. And if they're big on shorts, I know a lot of YouTubers were, were reluctant to even post shorts on, on YouTube. Um, but you still got to do the long form content. Think, think more long term of like where they're making their money. Right. So we were talking about earlier how you were doing medical cells. Was it medical or was it pharma? 
Yeah, it was like pharma, pharma sales. Yeah, so like the Viagra, the Lipitor, the, you know, the exciting stuff. I'm the guy in the doctor's office that would be bringing them lunch or sitting in the waiting room and you're like, your doctor's like 30 minutes behind and this guy in a suit goes in with like sample boxes and you're like, how come he gets to go in and talk to the doctor? I've been waiting out for 30 minutes. So that was kind of, that was me for a while. <laughs> well, Dan, you're one of the most intelligent people I know in this space. And so, <laughs> so nice. where, where I'm really curious is what from that line of work helped you with what's inside and, and, you know, creating content and growing an audience. And then yeah. after th that answer, um, what did you need to learn? The biggest thing that it helped me is I was really shy growing up. Um, I was really shy. Even I went on a church mission for a couple of years when I was 19, came home at 21. I had to take a public speaking class at college and I was terrified. And all you had to do is talk for three minutes. And I was so scared speaking in front of people, even at 21 years old, being a pharmaceutical sales rep taught me how to, um, they did so much training on verbalizing the doctor message and we would do role playing, pretending like we're talking to a doctor. And then I'd go into doctor's offices and you have to be buddies with them, but you also need to teach them something. And um, I've taken that into becoming a YouTuber to where I'm comfortable talking to a camera. It feels more natural. Like it feels like I'm just talking and being friends with somebody. But then on the other side of it, you could look at our channel. We're not as, I'm not as smart. I'm not a rocket scientist like Destin from Smarter Every Day. And I'm not like Jerry Rig Everything who's like breaks everything down in depth. But if you watch our videos, you're going to be entertained and you're going to actually learn something. And when it, and also when it comes to brand deals, I've found ways to work in the brand deal without the, without the viewer feeling as much like it's a sales pitch. And so that came from being a drug rep, which was really helpful. And then the last thing was looking at the numbers of which doctor was prescribing the most versus which medical plans they were using that actually covered my product. And I would like focus on them. I do the same thing here. It's like looking at the platform, what is important to YouTube right now? What is their priority? What are my data sit? What does my data say? And how can I find my strengths and like feed into that so that I can fit into that bubble and maybe shift and get some more views, make some more ad revenue in that side of it. So I, there's a lot of people that I talk to that that want to be a YouTube creator so much that they're like, I just am never going to go to school. I'm never going to get a full-time job, regular job, but I'm kind of the opposite. And maybe it's because I'm 41 year old YouTube creator. I think that people really should like go to school, get an education, get a job, work hard, and still follow your dreams of being a YouTube creator. But there's so many things you can learn and some stability that gives you that opportunity to just like take risks on your YouTube or influencer side of things that if that's your full-time job and every little penny that comes in, you're going to have to follow, you're going to be really in a rigid space where you can't really grow your YouTube channel or your influence as much. So I don't know the whole, don't quit your day job. I'm fine if people quit their day job, but let's, uh, let's wait till it grows a little bigger and hopefully you can learn something from your day job or from college or school before you make that switch. That's a really good point. Um, I look back at, you know, college and whether I should have done it or not. And, and the truth is, I didn't know what to do in the first place. I did not have a vision of what my career needed yeah. to be. And going to you know school helped me get a lot more data of like what existed out there. And then when I started a business, which I always knew I was going to, I was able to you know define a niche that I could you know truly you know pursue and and and, and grow. And you know you know that's what you know created Plaid, which got acquired by Ben Group. And um, but it, it, that's a good point. I actually see, you know, my experience at college of just letting me just really see what was out there and like meeting a lot of people and defining it. And so maybe that's what's going to be the future, you know, with, with people creating content on YouTube or TikTok, where 
maybe school can be helpful in this defining, you know, what you want to accomplish and what you want to achieve. And it could be a good, I mean, launching point. Yeah. Lincoln and all of his friends right now, he's 16 years old now. He's not in second grade anymore. He's thinking about college now. All of his friends are thinking about college. He's a golfer and he's kind of on this, this summer's fig the next few months, the next two months, he's got to play well enough to try to get college scholarships for it. But it's interesting because a big part of their future, even as college athletes is going to be, what is your social presence? Because now there's sport deals, sporting deals for these name, image, and likeness for college athletes. But a lot of them are relying on, I'm a really good golfer. I'm a really good football player. I'm a good baseball player. And they're like, show me the money. But a lot of the traditional brands I met with, um, we went golfing with uh, the CEO of VaynerMedia this last week in New York, um, um, Gary Vaynerchuk's brother, AJ. And AJ was telling us, he's, and they were at the forefront, like they just got a guy drafted yesterday that was on the best, well, one of the best teams, Cincinnati this last year. And he, they did his NIL deals, but it was tricky because even though he is so famous, one of the best quarterbacks, he got drafted, I think in the second or third round, it was hard to justify to these, some of these brands because at the end of the day, they're like, well, what's, what's his following on Instagram? What's his following on TikTok? And even though they're super great at sports, they don't have that. And so... I've been trying What's to that tell Lincoln influence? And his, you know, yeah, who, and it who's going to see if there's a collaboration or not. Yeah, exactly. And so I've been trying to help these kids like my own son, but I mean, he's fortunate to have the YouTube side. So he has a bit of a following, but all of his friends that are playing sports that come to me and they're like, we want to get NIL deals and make this money. And I'm like, Hey, go and go and actually make content on your Instagram, grow that thing up. And then that way, when you do get to college, instead of making, I mean, they're really making like 50,000 a year just from name, image, likeness deals. You could make 150 now because you have even 10 or 20,000 followers on Instagram. And so I think like going back to the, like going to school and everything, you can do it hand in hand. And I think whether, even if these guys don't end up getting name, image, likeness deals or whatever, it's important to understand how social media works for these kids these days and to grow their profile in an organic way and not sell out and take the money right away, but like grow this thing because who knows what the future is going to look like, but I would imagine that every kid and teenager is going to have some form of social media in their life that's important. So, yeah. Yeah, becoming a celebrity or creator back in the day, or let's say specifically celebrity or talent, was you you got this group of people to approve you and you got to be in a film or a TV show and you became a star. Now, the difference is you were literally told exactly what to do. You knew your piece of the puzzle and, you know, you, you listened and you followed direction today. Um, creators and, and talent can have way more influence and on, on what they do and, and how they do it. And you're, and you're right. It, it makes it so it's that much easier for the brand to collaborate with you. Not only that, you know, you have an affinity when it comes to the sport, but being able to have distribution, being able to have a community of loyalists, makes it that much more valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, so it's interesting, you know, we were talking about earlier how, you know, brand deals is, is you know, the majority for majority of creators, they're making more money from brand deals than anywhere else. It's interesting. You know, you still have a lot of brands that are doing it for the first time, but I would say right now it is pretty mainstream, but what is lacking is the ability on the brand side to be able to model success. And to be able to, you know, after figuring out attribution, to be able to model out, okay, this is how we can be this this successful, or this is, you know, the the ROAS or the ROI that we're going to be getting by spending this amount 
on this group of creators. And so scale is very lacking when it comes to you know brands being able to not just work with a dozen, but to get eventually justify to work with hundreds or even thousands. Um, what are some things brands can do differently to be much stronger when it, when it comes down to looking at the data and you know modeling out success with working with creators? One thing that I love is I love and not, not to market for you guys or whatever, but I love that you pull up the data and you're helping. You guys have a lot of tools on the back end that gives these brands the data afterward. And instead of saying, we're just going to work with one creator, you're working with 30 creators and you're, you're picking different demographics of audiences, like totally different genres of YouTube creators or influencers. And then you can provide that data back. It's funny because like, I, I really do like it when they do have a link that's like trackable of how many sales we, we hardly get reported back as a creator. Like we, how many sales some of the companies do. I like to hear it, but sometimes I'm like, I wonder if they don't want to share it because they sold so much. <laughs> but <laughs> they don't want yeah, to have to spend more next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I I do love that side of it where there is some sort of tracking mechanism in place. And from my meeting with with I, I know that I've gone with Google a few times and met with like the food companies, the chief marketing officer officers. We went to Chicago one time and spoke I spoke in this room. And a lot of their hesitations are it is still a little bit old school on the higher levels of some of these big companies to where it is the traditional sense. Maybe they don't understand what this influencer marketing looks like. So maybe they'll put a sliver of their budget there, but they'd rather have it in TV commercials or some of these areas that I feel like sometimes maybe they don't want it as trackable because they don't want them to say that they failed with some campaign when all the data is here and is trackable versus you go throw a TV commercial out and you're able to say, oh, look at this. Look how well we did. We just got LeBron James to show our GMC Hummer in, a, in an ad. Wow, we killed it. We did pat on the back. Good job. Well, today it's so trackable. You can see the views. You can see the engagement. And if you do it right, you should be able to track some of the actual clicks or the increase in lift in sales. And hopefully over time, people, I mean, we're already starting to see it. People are moving more of their budgets to that. But it's still, in my opinion, obviously I'm a creator, but I feel like it's still too small of a percentage versus what they're doing with their traditional spend right now. Um, we did a video with with LG. Um, we've done a bunch of stuff with LG and they gave us a vacuum to do a YouTube video on. It was like a stand-up stick vacuum and it had this little box where you connect it in and all the junk goes out. It just automatically, as it's sitting there on a stand, it sucks out all the stuff. And part of the deal was to make a TikTok for it. And I made the YouTube video. It was great. I thought it was great. It was okay. It was a good video. It was like showing the vacuum. But then I'm like, oh, I have to do this TikTok. And it, I wasn't very excited about it. I, sometimes I'm like, oh, TikTok. I'm too old for TikTok. But <laughs> I went and I made it. And I'm like, how do I make this easy? I'm like, okay, five reasons why this is the best stick vacuum. That's easy, consumable, could do it in less than a minute. And I showed the five features. And then we just posted that on TikTok. And I'm like, okay, done with that part of it. That thing took off. It got millions of views thousands of shares that people are like, we have to get this vacuum for our house. I literally had my neighbors calling me. Like I was just about <laughs> to buy this company's vacuum. And instead I got, I, should I get this one? And so I'm like, well, let me tell you my opinion on it. And so um, based off of that, we got some more deals with, with them. And um, that video just popped again recently. And we've, and so we've been talking to LG a little bit about stuff, but it's, so it's interesting to see on some of those metrics, there's no tracking link. There's nothing. But when we went to New Jersey a few months later, they told us that they were all sold out in America. And this was on Black Friday this last November. They're like, we, only, we, we allocated 36 of them for this live stream that we excited a live stream on their, on their channel. Like we only have 36 because they're all sold out. And 
it wasn't all us, but we were a portion of that and they recognized that. And so it is nice when brands can recognize like the influence and not everything hits. My YouTube video did terrible and I thought I was going to do great. The TikTok, I'm like, it's a TikTok, throw it on there. And it did really well. And now I've, over the last like few months, I've seen more of the power of short form content and we've been making more short form content either for brands or for ourselves. On YouTube, we don't make money off of the short form content on the on the shorts. But like I posted one within the last month and we have 7 million views on it. And we've gained 25,000 new subscribers off of one YouTube short that's like 45 seconds long. And then when I publish my actual YouTube videos, we're getting more people to watch it and we make more money off of that. So anyway, it's a game. It's it, it well, I don't want to say game, but like it's an interesting thing to like look at the data. How do I get to my goal of of getting people to watch my videos that I love, working within the constraints of whatever's important on the algorithm at that time? So anyway, that was way longer answer. No, no. Longer, I, oh, so many gems there. Thank you so much. And and look, we like on this podcast to go as deep as possible. Um, it's not gonna get us millions of views because it's very niche, but um, this is why I do it. I, it's a, it's a, it's an excuse for me to really data gather and make sure that I'm learning everything I need to learn. And it, it's interesting. You mentioned that, you know, there are some brands that take data very seriously and they, and they, and they share the data that they have with you, et cetera. Um, but I think the number one problem right now is to where brands are having a hard time being very data driven in this space is that it's, well, there's a couple of things. One herding cats is extremely difficult. Think about it. When you used to do a TV buy, or even when you do like a Facebook buy, it's very turnkey. You know what you're getting. Um, you give a piece of content, and and you know there's not as much effort as there is in collaborating and coordinating with a variety, many of which, not you, but many of which are egocentric and difficult to work with. Um, you know, yeah. creators, they're artists, and and they have every right to be because they've built their own little universe or a, a, a huge, you know, media company. And, and, and so working with a, a variety of different, a variety of different individuals can be very difficult to coordinate and, and, and to monitor. And, and so you have to not only have the relationships, you have to be looking at the data correctly, but you also, you know, one thing that's extremely important is you gotta have the proper data-driven systems and processes to right. not only work with creators that's empowering to them, but in a way where you can work with a higher quantity and still have good quality control. And I think that is the one area where most advertisers and brands come short or fall short um, is because it is complicated because you are literally working um, with a lot of different individuals that are very busy, that are making a lot of money in a lot of cases. And, and um, maybe there's a lot of high touch, you know, um, communications that need to go into it. And that's, Brands are not set up for that. Um, yeah. you know, there was one time where, where a company, uh, I was talking to a CMO of one of the top you know, CPG brands out there, and they said, hey, um, as we work with these creators, you know, we're thinking of just you know, sticking our media team on this and having them you know, grow this. And I, my first question to them was, well, look, once you figure it out, what then? What happens? So if, if so, if you figured out how to get an ROI, work with creators, um, what are you going to do to set up a team to be able to work with dozens to hundreds and eventually thousands? Because there are brands that are doing it at scale where they're working with thousands and thousands of creators every year and they're seeing, you know, a strong return on advertising spend and an ROI. And but but it's really the ones that truly invest in 
being data-driven, but also making sure that they have the right systems and processes in place to be able to work at that scale. And you're going to have to have technology that helps you with that. 100%. Um, one thing as well, I think that is missing that needs to be taken more seriously that I believe there's been more investment around TV, but you know, that's very difficult to really discuss how effective um, the attribution is, or, you know, um, being able to monitor the sales lift is right now brands and advertisers, they need to invest in attribution. They need to make it a top priority. Not only, you know, what does the view mean to them, but how do they get to tr actual transactions, whether it's retail online or in store. And it's possible to do, it just takes a lot of effort. And there's a lot of, I think, marketing teams that probably get a lot of pushback internally because it costs money to get to the point to be able to truly um, you know, measure attribution. I think that's another thing that's kind of slowing things down for brands to take it to the next level because there's $700 billion a year being spent a year um, on media. And creators are definitely the hottest form of media right now. It's the biggest amount, largest amount of inventory that exists. It's just much harder to navigate with the lack of, you know, data-driven systems and processes and, you know, um, technology infrastructure to do it. And so there's a lot of investing and inventing that needs to happen from each perspective of every brand. That's great. I mean, you're the expert on this and I love that. That is really good insights. And that is, I mean, it's hard to add to that because it's true. I mean, we've gotten better. We've gotten better. And thanks to companies like you that like come in and actually create these systems on the back end. But even on a simple level for these companies, we had a toy company once that we worked with and it was direct through them. And <laughs> we put the link to their toy in the website in the, in the description. And the problem was you click on the link. We got so many people to click on it. They were like, wow, we had however many it was, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that like clicked and went to the website. They said, but you know, we didn't get really get much conversion. Like people didn't buy things. And when we looked at it, I, even my one of one of my own employees, he goes, that's so funny that they say that because after I watched the video, I went and clicked on the link and I went through and after going through six different screens, I still wasn't in a place that I could actually like buy this thing. And it was such a hard checkout process that my brain was bored and I'm like, maybe I don't need this. And I bailed. And so it was really interesting that I, I mean, he's the case study of one. But I think a lot of people went through that. Maybe, maybe you're, you've got this link, you've got this good product. We just sold the heck out of it and I got these people to your website. And then it turns out your website sucks and nobody can navigate it properly to even buy the thing. And the transaction's hard. So there's UI and UX are so important. Yeah. And, and I, I would, you know, I believe it's 80% of the conversion. I mean, if you can't, you know, learn about the product and then go immediately and, and have a transaction and purchase that product, because it's too complicated, because you can't navigate the website, there's going to be a huge amount of drop off. And I bet if we were to look into the analytics um, from the brand's perspective in that specific case, the fact that you had that many clicks and it was an anomalous amount of clicks, there should have been conversions as a result of that, unless something completely turned them off into the website, or it was just too difficult to invest more time into actually buying the product. Right. And when I see things like Twitch and um, YouTube super chat and things, people are willing to just drop money just with a push of a button or you watched. I know you're one of your previous guests. You just barely had Mr. Beast on when he sells merch. He makes it super easy to buy the merch. He's like they're signing it for, for days. You just push a button and you buy it. 
And so I don't know, that's a small part of it. Like I think influencers can sell stuff, but gosh, brands, please make it easy to actually purchase your product so that it's like purchased and we can go back to watching our videos. That's, that's like the mind of a lot of these viewers. They want to be entertained. They got convinced to buy something, let them just buy it and get back to their viewing, whatever it is. So Yeah, it's one of those areas where I think organizations are going to have to evolve on how they operate. There's a good chance there's a lot of silos between, let's say, the brand team, the product team, and, and, and the actual devs or the tech teams. And they're just mm -hmm. not in sync and they're not moving, you know, fast enough, you know, to really evolve their ability to drive sales. I mean, but that, that happens a lot. And, you know, we actually have performance um, experts that are, you know, very data driven. Um, they're like data engineers and th they can be very helpful on brands understanding like, look, we can get you hundreds of millions of views or even billions of views, but if you don't have the right and simple process to be able to buy the product, it's not going to work. It's, it's, it's you know, it, maybe there's some cases where there's gonna be an anomaly and you're still gonna be able to sell out or sell a bunch of products, but you absolutely gotta make it so when people come to your website that they trust you, but it's also very simple and clear of, of what you're supposed to accomplish or how to accomplish, yeah. you know, to actually buy something. So we've talked about my trends this year of things that I'm seeing like Facebook, YouTube, what are you seeing in the last few months on your side that are interesting, that are maybe different um, from the influencer side of things, what people are doing well or where opportunities are now I'm asked, turn it, I'm the interviewer here, but I'm curious <laughs> to know your perspective because you do work with so many creators and work so many brands and are seeing what's happening right now in 2022, like best practices or interesting insights. Having a TikTok campaign that's focused around conversions is definitely an area that I think has a lot of opportunity. We're now starting to see with a lot of our clients that they're driving a lot of sales and engagements on TikTok. Um, I'm really excited and bullish on the opportunity with live streaming. Um, I talked about this a couple of different times, but there were you know, two different creators in China that did live streaming that got over a billion dollars in revenue. Actually, one specifically, Lipstick Brother, wow. got $1.9 billion in revenue in 15 hours. I really think this next year, there's going to be a lot more creators that are going to put in more time to figure out how they engage with their audiences um, you know, with, with, with live streaming because there's a lot to do there. And I, I bet that would be an area that would be a huge opportunity with you and Lincoln and, and what's inside because you are already talking about products in most of your content and you're cutting them open, et cetera. And so, um, but I think there's going to be a lot of things that are happening in the East that are going to be coming over here. Um, right. Also excited about NFTs. I, I and, and that's actually an area where I'd love you to, you know, dive into from your perspective because you've been a very successful investor with NFTs. Um, where do you think the future is when it comes to NFTs? Man, it is so early, but it is so fun. I mean, on the on the surface, a lot of people are so mad about NFTs and they don't like them because um, right now, a lot of the utility and a lot of the use for them in the real world is a little limited. It's kind of like when you dig deep into it and you see it, it has a lot of the same feels as what YouTube used to have back in the old days, maybe before the partner program. I know one of the one of my NFT friends, I'm going to LA with them on Thursday to meet with one of our favorite NFT projects, the Adam Bomb Squad, like the founder of that, but Shay Carl Butler, like he's, he was one of the founders of YouTube or like YouTube creator side of things back in the day. And he is, he, he was telling me, I mean, he ended up selling his company to Maker and then he's kind of in a way been like retired for a little bit. He owns a ski resort now in Pocatello, Idaho. One of his first brand deals was actually with us. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Way back in the day. So he's, he's such a good guy. And he was telling me the other day, he's like, I have not had this same feeling about technology or the future of excitement about anything other than when I was with YouTube and now right now with this NFT space. And he said it was very, there, some of the similarities that I like is that he said back when he was doing, this was like 2009, 2010, whatever it was, before they had a partner program, he said his neighbors and his family were so like embarrassed. Like, I can't believe you would make these dumb videos on the <laughs> internet. And you think you're going to be some famous person or something. And then, and it was kind of like a really negative, negative vibe. And it wasn't until like three or four years later, once it became more mainstream and people realized, oh, this is a legitimate job. These guys do have influence. They're selling products for companies. They're building their own brand. And all those same people that were skeptics kind of wanted to come to him and learn about it. And that feels very similar to right now with NFTs because once you dig deep into it, all of a sudden, like a, a, a day feels like a week because you're just learning so much about it and seeing the potential and the possibilities of it. And it feels very similar. So I'm excited to see what brands do with it. I know Susan with YouTube recently had like a big meeting with all the employees, all hands on deck to be like, we got to figure out how to work NFTs into this system. And the problem I would say is that there are a lot of people that are, that are trying to learn and they're launching their NFT projects and they're not very good. And then people invest into them and they lose their money. And then it's like, oh, why did I just do that? And so that's kind of like my first thing I say to people, like, don't go put money into NFTs that you can't afford to lose potentially, because it is kind of like the stock market in 1999, which I remember because I was invested in some of those. A lot of the companies ended up failing and a lot of them ended up taking off and doing well. But I'm excited from the creator side of it to see who can add value and give access to their life. I know Logan Paul is dropping his own NFT project right now. He went and took a Polaroid camera and took a picture every day with a Polaroid camera, which is interesting. Like his brother, when he's in the fight, he's right there in the ring taking a picture the, at, at, during the fight. And now he's taking those pictures and minting them as NFTs and you can like buy those. And then what's cool is once you own that down the road, it, it gives you access. He can add on top of it to be like, all right, who wants to come with me to my, you own the, the one for my brother's fight. How about you get front row tickets and you get to sit with me because you own that NFT. And so it's like, it's a really cool way for creators to gain, give access to their fans or to be able to say, like for musicians or for even for YouTube creators, I have this video. I have five NFTs that are based off of this video. Like imagine Mr. Beast, like one of his videos where he goes and buries himself and he gets like hundreds of millions of views. But what if he did an NFT that people could invest in and then 50% of the revenue of that video gets divided up among the people that only hold that NFT? Musicians are doing it right now. They're able, they're launching songs and 50% of the streaming rights go to the owners of the NFTs. And that just raises the value of it. I have this, this wrestling belt right here behind me. And it's like Gary Vaynerchuk came to my house and we like cut open this wrestling belt. He loves wrestling. If you watch his videos, like in his studio, he's got the other half of that right above his head. And I own one of his NFTs that, that hopefully someday he buys the New York jets, which he's been talking about forever. And this one's like a green one and whatever. And he's mentioned the, like the tie into the Jets. And he could, when he owns the Jets, take like 2% of ticket sales and divide that up among the NFT holders and add that utility on top of it. So it's been an interesting space and there's a lot to learn. The people that we're meeting with in LA on Thursday, they own a clothing company that's been a streetwear company for 19 years in LA, one of the top streetwear companies, the hundreds. And they launched their NFT project. Like I, every month they're dropping clothing and selling their clothing and I'm getting a return off of it. Like I get a gift card basically to go buy stuff at their shop because I own the NFT that they based that shirt off of. 
So there's interesting, it's still so early, so early. But Do you ever see a day where a bulk of your content can be uploaded into an NFT? Where I, that's yeah. where you make the majority of your revenue. I, I think that these platforms are realizing that. Obviously, you see Meta and Mark Zuckerberg, and he's going into the metaverse and like, how can we get ahead of this? YouTube now is starting to look at that because obviously, like if it's decentralized and it's its own platform that people are publishing their content, that cuts out YouTube's revenue. So it is smart for YouTube to look at it. Is there a way that we can integrate this into it? So instead of going off platform and creating some, whoever creates whatever next thing they're going to create, they stay here and people that own the NFTs for the videos do make money off of it. So I, I hope some of the companies can figure that out a little bit and, and get it working the right way, but still super early, but it's, it is fun to see where that's going right now. You know, we should like hire a team of lobbyists and figure out how to, um, make sure that fractioning becomes more and more legal in the future, because that to me yeah. is what's most exciting about the potential of blockchain and NFTs where a million people can own the same series or the same, you know, content. Imagine what will happen with music. Um, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for labels to say to stay relevant when you have these creators or mu music creators that have hundreds of millions of followers that realize, wait, I can just be in this with my audience and work with them directly. I can own the community. I can right. own, you know, the IP a hundred percent, and I can also figure out and be much more empowered on how I do things my way. I think that's going to be really interesting because it's probably going to be the next wave where creators you know, will be that much more free and that much more right. empowered to do to create the way that is the most authentic to them. And you look at these, these um, music creators that have over 200 million followers. Imagine if that was you know, accessible to them, everything would just change. I mean, right now, everything already should change because they have way more leverage than they, they have ever realized, or I think that they currently realize that could just be game changing. Most of these music For creators sure. that have over a hundred million followers, if they were just much more sophisticated and um, serious about making video content on an ongoing basis and optimizing that, they could be some of the biggest content creators that exist. They really could. And your point is an important one is that right now we're not really to the point in the United States, at least for the, the legal structure to be there for them to be able to really fractionalize ownership of different things and give them straight cash for stuff. And it's going it, to, it kind of reminds me of when over the years I've owned Tesla cars since 2016, I've been through, I've, I watched Elon Musk, like almost go bankrupt Tesla being two weeks from bankruptcy. Like it almost happened. And one of the one of the big obstacles that they had is that they're trying to get their franchises in certain states. They still can't in some states because there's the lobbyists from the unions. They're not part of a union. They're also they also are going against like the big four GM, these Detroit companies, and you've got the local franchises in every state that's in, that, that's tied in big lobbyists to the state legislatures, and they're paying these guys to put up these roadblocks. And it finally got to the point where Tesla's became a cool enough car. They sold enough that. It, the traditional manufacturers are like, okay, we're going in on this and we're trying like, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, it's, it kind of reminds me a little bit with the NFT space is that you have a lot of people that have a lot of incentive for the fractionalization to not happen, to have this revenue share to not happen, to be, have it regulated like, like a security, like a stock. And like, they're going to be lobbying and talking to their government where the people that really want this NFT side of it 
or NFT or cryptocurrency to be like decentralized and not have some of the reaches, they're not as strong and as powerful and in the pockets of some of the, of the legislatures and their story is not really getting out as much. And so um, I know Andrew Yang has been talking about this a lot. He's going on Twitter spaces on people's podcasts talking about, here's what you can do. You need to go to DC and like educate these think tank groups that are going to be the ones that are advising these senators. You need to have them hear your voice. Otherwise they're going to do like an uneducated, basically biased toward the bigger lobbyist side of it. So anyway, we may be a few years away from all of this stuff really coming to fruition as far as from like the legal side of things, but but I definitely think it's coming in some form or fashion. So it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, you know, it, I think that will be a, a completely new wave of innovation that happens with art. And, you know, when the artists are truly empowered, you know, on their own to be able to, you know, monetize to a level that they haven't been able to before. Um, yeah. A lot of exciting things. Hopefully the SEC is very progressive and in navigating, you know, their policies and make it so that the end user and the creator end up, you know, having the most benefit rather than, you know, centralized, you know, big media conglomerates. Right. Uh, so we'll see. I, I, I have, uh, I'm optimistic that these types of things could happen because I think this is what everyone wants. And, and it's, and as um, the barrier of entry is becomes more simple and it's, it's easier, you know, to work with blockchain and NFTs, it's, it's going to be very interesting um, to see what happens. Um, one controversial question around that, have you noticed that there are a good amount of creators, and I'm not going to name any specific names, that get behind an NFT, and I think they call it pump and dump, where they go right. in, they get everyone to go in there and, and, and pay for it, and, and, and then you know, they cash out and they immediately sell everything out. Have you noticed that, that happening? Yes, and that's the great thing about this. Where Think about it from a brand deal perspective. <laughs> Say you guys paid me. $1 million <laughs> to talk about whatever thing it is, like this Yeti Mike, this company, I'm not calling them out, but to, to talk about it and I promote it, everybody buys it. And then I actually in my real life don't give a rip about it. And I just take the money and I'm out. It, it People don't usually know, they don't know. They're just like, well, he just got paid a bunch of money, but they don't know how much I got paid. They don't know any of that. With the blockchain, it's really cool because when you have like these pump and dump schemes with these creators that go out there, influencers that are hyping this up, you can go into their public wallet and see exactly what they did. And so they're getting called out. They're, they know exactly how much they got paid. They know if they got the thing for free and they know when they sold the thing. And so it's kind of nice because the blockchain makes it so transparent that, yeah, some people are getting busted for it right now, but their reputation is in a way toast in this space. Like, they're not going to be able to do another. Let me in, let me talk about this this specific NFT because people know. Oh no, they they're scammers. Like these influencers are scammers because of the blockchain. Where with this Mike thing, say the company goes bust or whatever, they they don't know how much I got paid for doing the, that. I got paid a million dollars because it's not on the blockchain. It's in my bank account. You know, so that side of it's going to make it really interesting. Where there are going to be scams. There's going to be people that in, that promote things and sell them. But man, I think people are learning pretty quick. Don't talk about things unless. Like I, I think from the FCC perspective, even from YouTube videos, we get people that reach out to us all the time and are like, hey, I'm going to send you this $500 <laughs> projector. Can you just make a video on it? You can have it for free. And I have to tell them, like, that's really nice of you. But whether you paid me $100,000 or the $500 for free, I have to do the same disclaimers to the internet out there. And some people, some in the NFT space, sometimes these people will airdrop and just send, like, we'll just give you like five of them for free. We're not going to pay you for it. 
but then but then those things are worth so much money and they're pumping it up it's in their bags and they they didn't even have to pay for it and then if it does go down i don't know what the liability is going to be like can you go back and sue these people for pumping something up that they didn't disclose that they got it for free because it is so transparent it almost seems like you could in a way sue them a lot easier than some of these things where you know you just yeah on the youtube side where it's just like actual dollars going places so i don't know if that makes sense but that is one thing i love about it the blockchain it's yeah it's it, it creates probably. more transparency and and that's exciting um and, and and it's funny that you mentioned like the whole ftc scenario a lot of you know companies go out there whether you know they're blockchain companies or you know a cpg or a gaming company and they think if you get this for free you know, we can have a wink, you know, a wink and a handshake that, you know, this is yeah. completely organic and you don't mention us. And that's actually a, a big problem when it comes to FTC, because whether you get it for free, whether you, you know, someone pays for your flight to be at an event, you have to disclose just as boldly as if you're getting paid a million dollars. And, 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 and what's interesting is we have data that shows that, and this is from a long time ago. So I mean, we'd have to like relook at this, but early days when um, you need to become more bold around FTC disclosure, we found that audience, I mean, creators that had loyal audiences, the audiences actually really appreciated the, the, the transparency. And we actually saw better results as a result of it. We saw higher views, higher click-through rates and conversions. And um, you know, viewers understand how this world works. They, they grew up mm -hmm. you know, on these platforms watching these creators and transparency always wins. If you ever, if anyone ever feels like you're not being genuine or authentic, and that you're trying to sneak something in there for your own benefit, that never ends well. Right, it's a good point. It's a it's a tough thing to learn as a creator early on because you don't want it to feel like a commercial, and you're worried about all this stuff, and you want it to be authentic. But at the same time, if you want to be a long-term creator and make it in this space and not get sued by the government, then uh, how about you just be transparent and clear? And you're right. I have seen times where. I'm like, man, this feels so sponsored, but I'm transparent about it. I say it and it, it actually does well. And the videos perform well. Like some of the brand deals I've done where they give me tons of talking points and a very clear <laughs> intro and a very clear <laughs> outro. Like I feel like, and, and then sometimes those videos have actually done very, very well. I thought I was going to kill the video because of the sponsor and it didn't. So like Philip DeFranco, I watch him all the time and he's just like, and today's sponsor is this. And it's like almost every video and you get used to it and you know it. And I'm sure he gets some conversions otherwise people wouldn't be continuing to sponsor oh, his, yeah. his stuff. So. His channel definitely converts. And so does yours. And, and, and so one thing I think that is interesting um, is that brands don't have to overcomplicate it. They don't have to provide a script. What we've learned is if they can just give a handful of like talking points, not all brands do this. Some brands, yeah. you know, they have like 20 talking points. But if you can just get a handful, like three to like six talking points, and then maybe just to mitigate risk of the brand not liking it, of, of having maybe a list of don'ts of things, what to avoid, it's it's pretty easy to make it so the brand and the creator can reach a consensus, be on the same page. And then as a result, it, I, I would argue it's the best form of advertising where the creator, the brand, the audience are all happy with the end result. And that ends up you know getting higher views and higher conversions. I do like it when it's like three to five, like three mandatory bold on the thing. And then they're like, also, in case you wanted to mention it, here's some other things you don't have to mention, but it's almost like educational. And usually I can find one or two things within that section that's totally relatable to me that I can mention in my own voice that helps the pitch feel more natural for the mm -hmm. brand. 
And so I can say the, the mandatory ones, but pick out a couple more that's like, I like these ones. So I definitely like that. Like, do this, don't do that. And then here's some other stuff you could say that's important to us, but you don't have to kind of thing. That helps. What is the one thing that you wish you learned faster when growing your channel? Oh, man. I would say the one thing that people say a lot of, I think I've heard a lot of creators say the same thing. It's like finding a really good, some good employees and being okay delegating some stuff and get, giving up the reins a little bit so you can focus on the things that that are very more important. Um, it took me a really long time to get an editor and I was nervous about it and I didn't know who was going to, we, we tried a few different people, but still I was like, nobody can do it like me, <laughs> even though I'm like not even trained in it. I'm not even that good. But then we found an editor that's, he's, I think he's been with us for like six years now. He's been with us for so long and he's our main editor. We've had a couple that have come and gone and that have been great also, but this guy is so good. He understands our business, understands the content, comes up with jokes and things in the, in the edits that I don't even think about because he's <laughs> like a, a fan of YouTube. And then our other employee that we have that we we got in, I think he was 22 years old when we hired him. If he went on like a church mission, went to like one year of college and was pretty new and fresh, but he understood social media and was passionate about it. And we gave him a chance to come on board pay a good amount of money and like rewards and stuff for it. But like, he's, he's done a really good job. Like when I talk about Facebook and like how well we've done on Facebook, a lot of that is due to his hustle and his understanding of the background. And so I think sometimes it's nice to get a brand deal or to get some ad revenue and be like, yes, I just made this money, but you've got to be open to reinvesting back into the business and doing it in a strategic way and like finding people that can come on board. I, I, and even right now, like I've been thinking about it, I'm like, man, I could really use someone to travel with me and help film and and like film some of these shots so it's not just me on some of these shoots and that's my next thing i i like my most current thing that i need to do but i think if you're making some money it'd be okay finding somebody don't be like this is your opportunity you can be here for free you should just be grateful for it i know some creators do that and it works for some of them but i like the idea of having a pay payment in there like how much you're going to pay them but have some incentives on there like if we get this brand deal, or if we, if you do this and have this ad revenue go up, like have some bonuses in there, that way we're all winning together. And it doesn't in a way feel as much like a business. It feels like we're family and we're all trying to be successful together. And when there's a win, it's not just me as the creator and the owner that's, that's, that's like benefiting from it financially, but the whole team does. And so those are some of the things that I think it's hard to do for a lot of people. And going back to like getting, going to school and getting day jobs, going to school and learning how to work with people in group projects and to do these things, even though the projects didn't matter at all in college, but understanding how to work with people, those skills I took away that were really good. And then also be, having my day job, like learning how to work with my team and being part of a team. And, and there's definitely, definitely some life skills that you learn because just because you make videos and you're creative and you're funny, this is a business. It's, it's just as much of a business as if I owned the Chick-fil-A down the road and I had to understand the finances of that and running it and doing running, managing employees. So there's a lot that goes into being a creator that um, maybe doesn't sound as sexy, but I think it's important. Well, you know what? I mean, you're obviously an awesome boss. The fact that you give <laughs> someone that edits videos upside on actual sales revenue, that's very progressive. That's very, you know, non-orthodox, you know, to, to, to do something like that. Um, how big is your team right now? It's pretty small. It really is. Just like as of right now, we have our editor that's been with us forever. And then our other creative director that runs a lot of the stuff. And so really, 
as of right now, it's the three of us. Wow. Most everything. You make a lot of noise and get a lot of things done with three people. That's, <laughs> really that's seriously employees. amazing. <laughs> yeah. We, I'm really grateful for our team. And at some point, I mean, yeah, we've had some good people in the past that have worked for us too. And we've also tried out people. One of the things that Devin said for finding an editor, which is a good tip for somebody if it's looking for an editor is film a video, like your standard video and when, and get like five or 10 people that apply to the job give them all the footage and give them like a 24 hour time frame and say, you've seen our videos or go watch our videos, take this footage and see what you can do to make it look like one of my videos. And some of the people like three or four of them, Devin had told me this, he's like three or four of them won't even edit it. They'll just disappear. They applied for the job. They're interested. <laughs> but then they get the thing and they're like, nah, I don't want to edit this. And then some of them will make videos. Some of them will be terrible. Like they've never watched YouTube in their life, but they went to film school and they understand that side of things. But then you'll have one or two that are amazing and you're like, we need, I need to hire these people. And so that's always, that was really good advice from Devin about how to find somebody so you can like test them out first and make sure they know how to edit stuff first and understand your voice, understand what YouTube creators they like, what their sense of humor is and stuff. So yeah, that was good. Good. It's good. It's good to get editors. And I've heard people at YouTube meetings when we've had like top 100 creators out we got, we did this for a few different years before covid where it's like the top 100 creators and they would all talk and it seemed like hiring an editor was always one of the things that they're like i need more editors i need to figure out how to do this that's a consistent theme that i continue to hear about um today as well you know in the last 15 years that i've been doing this is finding a good editor um is so valuable and usually creators when they find that person they never let them go they'll do whatever they have to, to keep <laughs> yeah. them on because that's the first step to scaling and i think as like growing a business whether you know it's your own you know creator business or a startup or whatever it is i think the the easy I mean, the best thing to learn is to understand what are your weaknesses and what are your strengths and address your weaknesses because those are bottlenecks in the business most likely and get people that are better than you um, and do those things and then optimize what you're really, really, really good at. And one thing I tell a lot of my managers is that I'm not going to really respect them as a leader until they figure out how to hire people that are way more talented than they are. And then they're going to truly learn how to scale and, 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 you know, build out talents that maybe are much more strategic and in, in helping the business scale and, and helping the business achieve its goals. And so it's yeah. one of those, you know, harder things to learn. But I remember right when I decided to, you know, stop being so e uh, egocentric and, and arrogant and that, you know what, there's other people that can do this better than me and I need to find those people. That's when my business just exploded. And, and our business, you know, you know the Ben Group and TubeBuddy, we try to do that today by, as we hire, we really want to build a, you know, bring people in that can bring things to the table that we didn't have before but that can also help us focus on our current strengths. That's great. I love that. I think one of the things that I, I learned early on from Gary Vaynerchuk from, he was talking about delegation and, and, and also his employees. And he talked about how some companies, like I love my two employees that we have right now, and I don't want them going anywhere because they're like family. They're important to the company. At well, you the treat time, them like it, partners. Yeah. But at the same time, if they have a better opportunity I hope that what they learned while they were here, like will help them be even more successful in life. And that's kind of the thing where, where Gary has said a lot of companies get really upset when people leave. And yeah, if you come for six months and learn what you can and then leave and go create like a com competitive business that does stink. But I, I've, I've told my employees when I hired them and a couple others that we've had in the past, I'm like, 
I would be pumped if you worked here for two years, you add value to our company and our side of things. You learn a lot yourself about this space. You're going to, the curtain's going to be unveiled. You're going to learn more about social media than what that any school can teach you. And I would love it if you went somewhere and, and did awesome and created your own thing and did great. And so 